Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Karen Kay, Recovered Compulsive Eater from Syracuse, New York. And welcome to the Big Book Workshop with, with Harlan G. I'm from Syracuse, New York and my credit zone transfer. In the uh, chat area, you will see um, general announcements and for the seventh uh, tradition. Uh, try not to use the chat room while Harlan is speaking. We will leave that open uh, during Q&A and you can also um, host me. You can put uh, questions to me and Susan L will be our Q&A. So once again, it's Saturday, August 14th and Harlan's going to begin. And the, where we are in the big book is the family afterward. And we're starting out with those who have spent much time or what, which, which, which chapter? At the very beginning, 131 oh. at the very beginning. Oh, there you go. Harlan just told us. So Harlan G, it's all yours. God bless all you. Right, thank you, Karen. Thank you very much for your service. Welcome everybody. I'm just so glad you're here. I hope it is as gorgeous a day wherever you are, whether you're on a podcast, whether you're listening live, I hope it's as breathtaking today where you are as it is here in the desert. It is a very beautiful day here. We got some rain last night. It rained like we were going to have to build an ark, uh, which we desperately need, which is fabulous, um, which is just fabulous. And uh, today is, is another typical day in the desert. There's not a cloud in the sky and it's just gorgeous and hot and just beautiful. We have been in the chapter, The Family Afterward. And over the last couple of weeks, we have been talking about the perceptions, the misperceptions, the skewed viewpoints that addicts have, and that we make mountains of molehills and molehills of mountains, that we have a tendency to look at any situation and make it into a catastrophe. By just dropping my pen here, that could be construed as a catastrophe in my sick food-addled addict mind, and that there are many, many things going on in the dynamic of a family that can be problematic to the addict and problematic to the people around the addict. And one of the things that we have to look for is selfishness, the script. Selfishness is really a good word because selfishness means everything is about me. And when a person is in a situation where they are addicted, one of the things that we always look for first is that selfishness, me, 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 me. And it, it, that cannot exist in the mind of a person once they start taking the steps because the steps will attack that selfishness, but we have to keep working at it constantly. It is constant, constant work. The next thing we have to look at, I'm just going on the defects in step 10. The next thing we have to look at is our dishonesty. And as we have been studying the family dynamic in this chapter, we have a tendency to lie to ourselves and lie to others. What do I lie to myself about most of all as it relates to this chapter? 
I lie to myself in the thinking that comes very naturally to me, that my way of living, my steps, my spiritual angle, my spiritual growth is the only way for anybody to live. And if there's anything I learn from being in recovery over these many years, it's this, I do not have the answer to anyone else's life. I seem to have an answer to mine. And when I say seem, what I mean is it appears to me that this is the best way of life that I have ever known. I have never known peace. I have never known contentment. I have never known physical comfort. I have never known emotional sobriety until I picked up this simple kit of tools laid at my feet that we call the 12 steps. Very, very important for me to remember that I don't have answers for everybody. And there are people in my life. There are people in my life that are addicted. And there are people in my life that do not seem to be addicted. But at times, I want to scream out and say to these people, for the love of God, why don't you go to a meeting and get yourself grounded? And you know what, it isn't up to me. My job is to recover, recover, and recover. And so we've been studying this family dynamic. We have been looking at these things and hopefully what we've been doing over the past several weeks, because I know a lot of people poo-poo these chapters. And when I say these chapters, the three chapters that I'm talking about specifically are two wives, the family afterward, and to the employer. So when we look at these chapters, we are looking at chapters that a lot of people just, they want to breeze by them and say, oh, these chapters, they, they're, they're nothing I want to talk about. I don't care about these chapters. Let's take a look with an open mind and let's just see if we can set aside anything we think we know. Oh, I didn't finish the defects. Wait a minute. And then we have resentment and we have fear within the family dynamic. Now I'll go into this. The resentment is of each other, of ourselves, of our predicament. And there are certain things that will not just clear up because we're in recovery. If you sober up a horse thief, you have a sober horse thief. If you have, a, if you have problems with your taxes, if you have health problems, if you have mental health problems, physical health problems, you need to see a physician about those things. And so these are things that we also deal with as human beings. Okay, now I'm kind of, I kind of got ahead of myself there. And I apologize to, for that. I'm sorry. Okay, let me go back. Let's just try to set aside everything we think we know about these chapters, about the big book, about the program of recovery, about God or anything, even ourselves. Let's just do the best we can this morning to set aside that which we think we know so that we can let some new information come in. And I'm going to ask you to do that because I'm really, really excited about some of the things that we're going to be talking about today in this all important chapter, the family afterward. And before we begin today, I just want to remind you of something that I need to be reminded of. If Bill Wilson and God thought it important enough to include these chapters, I'm going to study them with the same 
energy, with the same uh, enthusiasm that I study any chapter in the big book. That said, let's go to page 131. And while we're on page 131, we are going to go to the paragraph that starts three quarters down the page at the very beginning. That's the paragraph that we're going to study, as Karen just said, at the very beginning. Okay. 131. At the very beginning, the couple ought to frankly face the fact that each will have to yield here and there if the family is going to play an effective part in the new life. And this is very, very important. No one gets their way all the time. And that's that selfishness that we've talked about. We have that selfishness. We have that idea that now that I'm in recovery or whatever that may be, whether it's religion, whether it's the 12 steps, my way is the only way and everybody just better follow my script. That's not the case, is it? Father will, <clears throat> excuse me, father will necessarily spend much time with other alcoholics, but this activity should be balanced New acquaintances who know nothing of alcoholism might be made and thoughtful consideration given their needs. The problems of the community might engage attention. Now, when we say the problems of the community might engage attention, I have to be very, very careful because in another part of the book, it tells me specifically that I cannot shoulder the burden of the world's affairs and carry them around with me. I just cannot do that. Like anybody, I look at the news, like anybody, I see what's going on, I hear what's going on, I get a lot of my news from, from uh, newspapers, as many of you do, of the, whatever that may be. But when we look at the world's events, what I have to remember is, a very, very wise man said to me years ago, Harlan, is this the hill that you want to die on? And sometimes when we look at the world's affairs and we see people doing things that we just can't wrap our brain around or thinking things or feeling things or having an opinion. Boy, we are so opinionated today, aren't we? God, we've got so many opinions running around out there. We've got the people who like this and then we've got the people who don't like this. And it just seems that there's no issue anymore that everybody can agree on. Doesn't it seem that way to you? I mean, it seems that way to me. But here's what I have to ask myself on a very regular basis. Is this the hill that I want to die on? How important is this? Yes, it may be something where we see something going on or whatever it is. You know, I had a woman call me five years ago. Five years ago, a woman called me and she lived in the state of Kansas. I'm not going to mention her name. It would, wouldn't be fair. She called me and she lived in the state of Kansas and she announced to me in November that she was now going to be eating and she was never going to another meeting 
that she was not going to work any steps, that she was just going to eat everything that she wanted to eat. Because the election, I'm not going to say whether it was a national or a local, the election just didn't go her way. And since the election didn't go her way, she was now going to eat. And I said, well, that's up to you. I would take a look at something and this is what I would look at. When we look at these world events, how is me eating, me destroying myself going to help that situation? The most common thing that I hear oh, all the time, I'm coming back to this woman from Kansas. I'm not that scattered, but this is something I hear all the time. I'm not going to believe in God because there was a Holocaust and then there was this injustice and there was that injustice. And then the, this group of people, they're not getting their due. And this group of people, they're getting trampled on. And I ask this question again and again, is that a reason or an excuse? Is it a reason or is it an excuse? Walk me through how an election, now I'm back to the woman in Kansas because it applies unilaterally. Walk me through this. How does me eating cupcakes, how does me eating Doritos help that situation? Going back to the Holocaust, this is my resolve. I'll be damned if Hitler is going to kill one more Jew because of what happened. I'll be damned. I am going to recover. There are things we see and things we hear and things we know that in generations before this were unknown to any person because what we live in today is a 24 hour inundation of information that heretofore was unavailable. What am I going to do with it? I could kill myself with food. I'm 67. I don't know if I have another recovery in me, but here's what I would bet on. I don't have another relapse in me. I'm old. Maybe I don't look old to some of you and to some of you, I probably look ancient. I depends where if you're 30, I probably look like a relic with, you know, that I'm the crypt keeper or something. I don't know. But here's what I do know. I don't think my body will withstand another relapse. When I relapse, I really go crazy. And when I relapse, it's Katie bar the door. I mean, it's, it's pizza. It's everything you could imagine. And I don't think my heart will take it. I have a chronic condition called AFib, which is atrial fibrillation of the heart. And thanks to the wonderful chemists that produce diet pop, and thanks to the wonderful, fabulous chemists that produce some of the sweeteners that I have used addictively over the years, the electrical system of my heart became broken. 
and the chemicals that are put in some of those drinks that I sucked down like there was no tomorrow upset the electrical system of my heart permanently and chronically. I don't think I have another real, I don't think I have another relapse in me. I hope to God that if I do, I survive long enough to come back into recovery, but I'm not planning on any relapsing today. But the reason that I'm bringing this up is because that same woman called me on New Year's Day of this year, New Year's Day of this year, she called crying that she's over 400 pounds. She's over 400 pounds. And I gave her some suggestions as to who to call for sponsorship. And I gave her some suggestions as to what she might want to do. And I have not heard from her since New Year's Day. She was supposed to call me that later that day on New Year's Day. And I hope to God that I will hear from her again. She lives in the state of Kansas. I'm not going to mention her name. The reason that I'm using this as an example is because we look at these things and it says here, the problems of the community might engage attention. I want to address it. And I want to talk about it, even though it takes time, because these are the very things that you hear all the time, people using as an excuse to jump out of any recovery that they may be in and binge. Let me assure you of something. There are, there was, there will be no let up to the injustices that the world presents. Nothing is fair. Nothing is without room for improvement. How is you eating and killing yourself going to help that situation? And the answer in my opinion is it's not going to help. It's not going to improve that situation. And you can try to make God mad by destroying yourself, but it does, the, the one it hurts is God, no question. He's crying too, but it does you and I no good to take these things in and say, F it, I'm just going to eat. So I hope that if there's one person out there that turns a TV, a radio, a computer, a newspaper, a magazine, if such a, I don't know if the magazines still even exist, except at the checkout line in the uh, grocery store. I don't even know who buys magazines these days, but I imagine they did. We used to, when I was a kid, we used to get look and life and time and boy, that's how we got a lot of news. But I don't even know if those things are, I don't even know if, if those things are, uh, are viable anymore. Do they still have those? I don't know. Maybe we'll talk about it some other time. Let's continue. Very, very important, though, because this is this is the kind of thing that can lead a person into trouble. Though the fam I'm on page 131. I'm about to finish the second to the last paragraph. 
Though the family has no religious connections, they may wish to make contact with or take membership in a religious body. Now, that is a choice that we can make. And that is a choice we can make. Yes, that's a choice we can make. No, there's no opinion on that from me because that to me is a personal and also an outside thing. What he says here in the big book is perfectly fine. He doesn't say we may take membership in a this kind of religion body or that kind of religion. He just uses the religion as kind of a blanket for everybody. Not a problem there. Nothing, nothing the matter with what he said there. I'm on the last paragraph, 131. Alcoholics who have derided religious people will be helped by such contacts. Being possessed of a spiritual experience, the alcoholic will find he has much in common with these people, though he may differ with them on many matters. If he does not argue about religion, he will make new friends and is sure to find new avenues of usefulness and pleasure. He and his family can be a bright spot in such congregations. He may bring new hope and new courage to many a priest, minister, or rabbi who gives his all to minister to our troubled world. We intend the, force, the foregoing as a helpful suggestion only. Remember, he is saying this is just a suggestion. We do not have opinions on what religion you should be or how orthodox or how strong your affiliation must be. Some of us have very strong religious affiliations. Some of you do not. Some of us do not have very strong religious affiliations. But when he writes this, this is what I want to take out of it for me. This is what I want to take out of it. What do I have in common with the most orthodox rabbi or a reform rabbi, or a conservative rabbi, or a priest, or a minister of any religion. What do I have in common with them? Hopefully this. I have this in common. I'll just use a priest or a minister because I am Jewish. So I'll just say, what do I have in common with a priest or a minister? This is what we can agree on. God, whether you believe it to be whatever or whatever, God exists. How do I know that there's a power greater than myself? I'm not talking about a religious deity. I'm talking about a power greater than myself. I went to meetings. Now I lived in Chicago. See my Chicago Cubs t-shirt? I am a Cubs fan till the casket drops. I don't care how many games in a row they lose. I am a Cubs fan until the casket hits pay dirt. So the bottom line is, I agree with a priest, a nun, a minister, a deacon, a lay, lay leader in, in, the, in the Protestant church. I have friends that are all of those things, but here's what I can agree on. Whether you are a religious deity in my mind or not, there is a power greater than myself that I choose to call God, you can call it anything you want. And that that power of the universe has come into my life and has done the impossible. I have not found it necessary in 22 and a half years 
to eat compulsively, to eat food that is forbidden on my food plan or amounts of food that are not on my food plan. That is a miracle. And because I am me, that miracle has more impact than the splitting of the Red Sea, the burning bush, the oil on Hanukkah that burned for eight days when it was supposed to burn for one day. It has more impact than Noah extracting a promise from God never to flood out the world again. And God said, I will show you the colors of the universe after the rainfall so that it will keep my covenant. And hence we have the rainbow. But to me, my abstinence and my program is more impactful than any of those things because I'm alive. I'm alive. So when we talk about religious people, whether they're members of this religion or that religion or another religion or or no religion, whether you are an atheist, which is fine, whether you are an agnostic, which is fine, whether you are a believer, which is fine. Here is what we can agree on. Page 47 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous asks the question that is the blood and guts and lungs and heart of step two. It says, and I'm quoting, do I believe or am I willing to believe that there is a power greater than myself? If I'm willing to believe, then I can make a beginning. So I believe that there is a power greater than myself. That will put me on a common denominator with the priest, the minister, the deacon, the rabbi, the elder. It will put me on a par with any of those people because that's where we can agree. Let's move on. But I wanted to remind everybody that these paragraphs are talking about the common denominator, not the ideas where we don't agree. We intend the foregoing as a helpful suggestion only. They're not going to tell you what to do. So far as we are concerned, there is nothing obligatory about it. As non-denominational people, we cannot make up others' minds for them. Each individual should consult his own conscience. Very important. So don't come away with this saying, the big book says I need to go to church tomorrow. The big book says I need to go to synagogue. No, 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 no. All it's saying is you can choose to go or not go. And that's your choice. And whatever it is you choose is wonderful. As long as you can believe that there is a power greater than yourself. You don't have to call it God. You don't have to call it whatever. It's totally up to you. Totally up to you. Let's continue. I'm on 132, middle of the page. We have been speaking to you of serious, sometimes tragic things. We have been dealing with alcohol in its worst aspect. In other words, what is alcohol in its worst aspect? How it devolves, how it putrefies, how it destroys not only the sufferer, but the people closest to us. Do you remember last week we talked about the fact 
that alcohol, food, gambling, drugs, whatever you're addicted to, love addiction, sex addiction, Al-Anon disease, what it does is it isolates you from your support. And in an abusive relationship, when you are in a relationship with a highly abusive person, what is the first thing that that person will frequently do? They will isolate you from friends, from family. And they will systematically let you know they don't like your parents. They don't like your friends. They don't like your sister. They don't like this one. They don't like that one. They don't want this person coming over anymore. I don't want to go to this person's house. I don't want to go to that person's house. I hope that doesn't sound familiar. But if it does, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, the food, the drugs, the alcohol, the gambling, the love addiction, the sex addiction does the same exact thing. Addiction will isolate you from any support that you may have. It will shame you. It will guilt you. It will throw you into a situation where you cannot, you seemingly cannot or will not reach out for help because you're ashamed of how you look. You're ashamed of how you feel. You're ashamed of what you've done. And yet you come into the fellowship and what we do is we welcome you with open arms. But the abusive addiction doesn't want you to know that. So the abusive addiction lies to you and says, you can't go back there until you've lost a certain amount of weight. You can't go back there until you're a certain size. You can't go back there until such and such happens. And that's simply not true. And that's one of the worst aspects of the addiction is how isolated, almost agoraphobic living that it causes the sufferer and it cuts you off from any form of support that you can tap into. And it is only when a person is completely destroyed that many of us will reach out for the help that we so desperately need. What is it about our ego? What is it about our mind that we will only reach for the right answer when we've exhausted every futile wrong answer that we could possibly look at? What is it about our minds that say, I'm gonna continue trying to do this on my own willpower when history tells me that that's not going to be workable? I am not a gambler. I am not a horse racing fan, but on isolated occasions, I have been to the racetracks in Chicago where they run horse racing. And at the horse racing track or the track as it's known, you get a program and what do you look at in the program? You look at the past performance sheet and the horse, let's just say the horse's name is uh, Bubblegum, just to make up a name. The horse is Bubblegum. And Bubblegum, when it's running on uh, wet ground or dry ground, this is how it does on wet ground. This is how it does on dry ground. And as you look at the horse 
and you look at its past performance sheet, you start to say to yourself, gosh, this horse has a pattern of results, a pattern of results that every time it runs on uh, wet ground, it does very poorly. But when it runs on dry ground, it does quite well. It wins or it comes in second or it comes in third or, or you know, it's right there. But when it's raining, it's just not a good idea to think that this horse is going to do so great. Now, let's just say it's raining. Do I want to bet on bubblegum? Probably not because it's been raining and bubblegum doesn't run well in the rain. Yet our past performance sheets get ignored. Every single time I go to this pay and way, I fail. When I go to this doctor for pills, I fail. When I try to diet on my own, I fail. So I now want to make a bet that I'm going to stick to my diet this time. But the last 6,012 times I tried to do this on my own, I failed every time. So this is alcohol in its worst aspect, not only what it does to you because of the weight, because of the cholesterol, because of the, if you're anorexic, if you're bulimic, what it does to your esophagus, what it does to your heart, that's part of it. Yeah, there's no question that that's part of it. But how it isolates you and how it humiliates you. This is a humiliating disease. Here's a question I get every week of my life. I don't like step seven because I don't wanna be humiliated. There's nothing in step seven that says you have to be humiliated. It says humbly, humbly, step seven, humbly. Humbly is not humiliated. Humbly means I am humble enough to say, I can't do this on my own. I need God's help. I'll ask God to remove my defects of character rather than thinking I can do it on my own. And in the final analysis, when we look at our addictions, food, alcohol, drugs, whatever they may be, it's what it does to the psyche. It's how it defeats us. You are smart people. You are confident people. You are beautiful people. But the addiction will tell you repeatedly, you are scum. You are not scum. God wouldn't make scum. But the addiction will have us believing we are unworthy of the fellowship, that we are unworthy of the steps, that we are unworthy of the support that is here and it's free and we need you. We thrive on you. We love you. We need you to trudge. What does trudge mean? It doesn't mean schlep. Trudge means that we walk with purpose a road of happy 
destiny, no matter where your story is now, whether you, to coin a phrase of my friend who lives in New York State, whether you've just put down the fork or whether you've just picked up the fork, we want you, we love you, we need you, and God will bless you when you come in here and work the steps, walk to God, he'll run to you, walk to God, he'll run to you, I guarantee it, if he did that for me, he'll do it for you. I am not the only one, and there are 132 of us here, you are no different in his eyes than any of us, you're no better, and you're no worse, we are all children of a loving God. So when they talk about alcohol in its worst aspect, we're not just talking about getting drunk. We're talking about the horrible things and how the addiction will beat you down and beat you and beat you down as if you had committed some heinous crime. There is another way. There is another way, but we aren't a glum lot. See right there. If newcomers could see no joy or fun in our existence, they wouldn't want it. We absolutely insist on enjoying life. Blessed be the merrymakers. Blessed be the people who smile and give reason for us all to smile. God bless the people who make this pleasant. You know, I miss, um, I miss going to retreats and I miss going to conventions. I've done a lot of retreats. I won't talk about conventions now, they're different. But when I do a retreat, let's just say in whatever, New Jersey, for whatever, just to pick a state out of my head, New Jersey. And I go there, I often don't know any of the people. I, I don't, I may have had contact with one or two of them, the ones that invited me out, but I don't really know most of you when I come to your towns, which I haven't done for, you know, two years. I've done Zoom retreats, but I haven't done any in person. And I love, just before we get started, especially in the morning, I love in the, in the cafeteria of the retreat center, the laughter and the banter. Some of you know one another and some of you do not. And there's no cool kids table at these retreats because everybody, if you're sitting by yourself, we'll invite you to come sit with us. If you insist that you want to sit by yourself, that's fine. That's okay. Mm -hmm. But we will invite you. We, we invite people that are a little hesitant to come and sit with us. There's no cool kids table. Same at lunch, same at dinner. And then there's the breaks and we have the laughter and we have the fellowship. And some of you know one another and some of you don't. But we all have this in common that we have come together from our pain and from our torture. We have come together in healing. And that is a very, very beautiful thing. 
And always remember this. This is something I was taught years ago. If you remember very little about what I've said during my life, remember this. Don't live to recover. Recover to live. Go live your life. Go live your life. But my life doesn't have to include ice cream and cake and pizza and french fries. My life can be better without these things. Go live your life. Don't live to recover. Recover to live. Let's continue. We try not to indulge in cynicism over the state of the nations. Goes back to what we just talked about, about the news and things like that. Nor do we carry the world's troubles on our shoulders. Very important. I talked about that already. I got a little ahead of myself. I'm, I'm not perfect either. But here's the line that I was referring to. Nor do we carry the world's troubles on our shoulders. If me eating ice cream is going to give the world peace, if me eating pizza is going to justify any of the things that you see on your TV, call me up and walk me through it. And I will go get some ice cream and I will eat 40 gallons of it for you so that the world can be a better place. But until somebody walks me through it and and convinces me that my eating pizza or ice cream or what have you or cake is going to fix the problems of the world, I'm going to keep working my program and refraining from those very things. We do not carry the world's troubles on our shoulders. When we see a man sinking into the mire that is alcoholism, we give him first aid and place what we have at his disposal. And I see many of you doing that all the time. I, on this very channel, this very bat channel that we are, you are on today, we have meetings Sunday through Thursday. And on Sunday through Thursday, they are at 5.30 p.m., Pacific time that will change in November, but they are at 5.30 PM Pacific time. And I hear so many of you earnestly trying to reach out to the newcomers. I hear so many of you trying to reach out to the people that are on that struggle bus. I hear you answering questions and I hear you being loving toward the people that are on the line and it makes my heart sing. It really makes my heart sing. You guys are doing a great job. For his sake, we do not recount and almost relive the horrors of our past. But those of us who have tried to shoulder the entire burden and trouble of others find we are soon overcome by them. We cannot carry the alcoholic. We can carry the message, but we cannot carry the alcoholic. Bill Wilson was not as good a sponsor as Dr. Bob. <sighs> of the first 100, and there's a list 
You can look it up online. There's a list. I don't know that the list has a name, but there's a list that they made. They sat in Dr. Bob's house, not in 1935 when it was formed. I'm talking 1937, 38 or thereabouts. And they have a list of names and how long the person has been sober. Nobody can carry these people. You can carry the message. You cannot carry the alcoholic. You can't. Dr. Bob was a far, far better sponsor than Bill Wilson. Of the first 100 people that, that recovered, two-thirds or 66 came out of Akron. Look at the stories in the big book of, of AA. In the pioneer section of the stories of the big book of AA, most of those stories came from Akron. They did not come from New York. What was the difference? Dr. Bob had the sense to say to the person, as he says to Bill Dotson, would you like to recover from alcoholism? And if not, we'll be on our way and we'll leave you alone. Isn't that what he says to him in the chapter that we get our name from on a vision for you? The chapter is a vision for you. He asks him point blank. He asks the question, would you like to recover from your alcoholism? Bill Wilson wasn't having that. Bill Wilson said to these guys on the bar stool in the bar, come with me. I'm going to show you another way. I'm going to get you sober. A lot of them didn't want to get sober. A lot of them didn't care what he was offering. A lot of them didn't want to hear it. And he had people living at his house too, just like Dr. Bob. One of them, Bill C., stole their a property, their, their suitcases, their clothing, and he pawned it, he hocked it, and he burned their house. And he committed suicide in their home. Well, Dr. Bob would have asked a question. Do you want to recover? And that's the difference between the two of them. Dr. Bob was a much better sponsor because he wasn't going to waste his time with people that don't want to recover. And so we can be overcome by them. And by this time, the book was written 37 and 38. It was published April 10th, 1939. Bill saw the error of his ways and he put in the book that we cannot carry their burden, we will soon be overcome by them. Bill learned a lot between 1935 and 1938, when most of, well, this chapter was written in late 38. But the bottom line is, is that Bill learned that he was not being an effective sponsor if he continues to try to carry the alcoholic. Let's continue. So we think cheerfulness and laughter make for usefulness. Outsiders are sometimes shocked when we burst into merriment over a seemingly tragic experience out of the past. Why shouldn't we laugh? We have recovered and have been given the power to help others. Go enjoy whatever life you have left. Laugh and cry and dance and mourn and live your life. For the love of God, this is not a dress rehearsal. 
Go and live your life. Whatever you may be, whoever you may be, there is no contract that says, this is how long I'm going to be here. Enjoy it. It's the one life you have. There is no guarantee. And this is not a dress rehearsal. Let's go to the bottom of 132. Everybody knows that those in bad health and those who seldom play do not laugh much. So let each family play together or separately as much as their circumstances warrant. We are sure God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. Now, in my mind, being happy, joyous, and free meant that I could eat all the ice cream I could eat. That's happy. That's joyous. That's free. And I believed at one time that unless I had a wife and a lot of money, I could not be happy, joyous, and free. I believed that unless I had this possession or that possession that I could not be happy, joyous, and free. And I found out that all that is just nourishkeit. What is nourishkeit? Foolishness. It's all a lie. I can be happy where I am, who I am, what I am right now if I just do this work, I will be happy, joyous, and free. And I've never known a happiness in my life, never, than the emancipation of guilt and shame and remorse that this food was bringing into my life. I have never known true happiness until my experiences started helping other people. I have never known true joy until I've seen you. Now, there are some of you, there are 132 of you. I, I don't have the time to go through here and see who's here and who's not. And also, if I start doing that, I can't really concentrate on what I'm talking about. I start losing my concentration. So as a rule, I don't sift through here to see who's here and who's not. If I happen to catch your name, great. But most of the time, I will know one, two, three, four, five, six people that are here. And I can see some names on the side. But I have seen some of you coming into this program. And you came in here without a clue what was going on. You trusted the process. You trusted us long enough so that by and by, all of a sudden, one day, I came to a meeting, whether it was at the North Scottsdale Fellowship Club or it was here on Zoom, because I've been around a long time before. Zoom to us was a noise a little boy made when they played with their toy rocket or a toy car. That was what Zoom was to me. Zoom, Zoom, Zoom. We, you know, we would play with our cars. And I've seen you announcing yourself as a sponsor. I've seen you taking service positions. I've seen you working with other people. If you go to the North Scottsdale Fellowship Club or you go to the coffee plantation here in Scottsdale, you will see hundreds of fifth steps on any given day. 
you will see big books and you will see people doing their step work at these places. Somebody will grab an empty room at the North Scottsdale Fellowship Club and they will start all of a sudden explaining to another person, what is the doctor's opinion? What is this? What is that? And it's a joyous thing to behold because one day somebody explained it to me and now hopefully I can explain it to someone else. And one day I won't be here anymore because God rotates service whether we're ready or not. One day I won't be here anymore. And maybe some of or one of or none of, I don't know. One of the people that I explained it to will explain it to someone else. And the chain that started in Akron, Ohio in 1935, Mother's Day, May 13th, or let's just use June the 10th because he wasn't so... Let's just use June the 10th, 1935, a chain that was started that day will continue and continue and continue and continue. So that 30 generations from now and 90 generations from now, there will be somebody somewhere pouring over a big book, explaining to somebody the allergy of the body and the twist of the mind. That will be our legacy. Let's continue. We cannot subscribe to the belief that this life is a veil of tears. And for so many of us, that's the only thing we're comfortable with. There is another way, though it once was just that for many of us, but it is clear that we made our own misery. Misery is of our own making. God didn't do it. Avoid then the deliberate manufacture of misery, but it, if trouble comes, cheerfully capitalize it as an opportunity to demonstrate his omnipotence. And what is omnipotence? It is the power of God. Good times and bad are headed for us all. Nobody is immune from the trials and tribulations of life. What does it say in step 10? It says, when these things occur, not if, when. And I'm quoting Clancy Immisland here. What did Clancy say? He said that no matter how evolved my recovery gets, I will never rise above the level of a human being. And as a human being, I'm going to have challenges. I'm going to have things every day that just don't go my way. And when they don't, I'm going to be mad, or I'm going to be scared, or I'm going to be whatever, and I'm going to need to lean into step 10. I'm going to need to lean into service. I'm going to need to lean into the fellowship. If you're new, you're not on step 10 yet, lean into the fellowship. Make an outreach call. Here's what I'm feeling. 
Here's what I'm thinking. Here's what's going on with me. And let that other person talk to you. But this paragraph here is very, very important. But it is clear that we made our own misery. God didn't do it. Avoid then the deliberate manufacture of misery. But if trouble comes, cheerfully capitalize it. Capitalize it as an opportunity to demonstrate his omnipotence. Now about health. A body, body badly burned by alcohol does not often recover overnight, nor do twisted thinking and depression vanish in a twinkling. We are convinced that a spiritual mode of living is a most powerful health restorative. And stop right there for just a minute. One of the things that makes OA more difficult than other programs, I'm not speaking necessarily about people that are uh, just slightly overweight but struggle with food. I'm not diminishing your pain. But for many of us who have gone into the three, four, five hundred pound level and beyond, it is extremely difficult to exercise the patience and to exercise the time that is required. When an alcoholic gets sober after seven days, they're as sober as a human being can get. And then they start to look better right away. With most alcoholics, with most drug addicts. Now, there are some exceptions to these rules, yes. But for most alcoholics, most drug addicts, gamblers, sex addicts, love addicts, Alanons, CODA, whatever, you can't look at the person and know, hey, this is a person that has a problem. But I have bubby arms and I have fat on the side and I have fat on this side and I have, I have consequences to the Kentucky Fried Chicken that I ate in 1966, even today. After all the recovery that I've had, I still have thunder thighs and I still have fat on my arms and it will not go away without a surgeon. I don't have the money and I don't wanna go through the pain of having it removed. That's very, very painful. If you've never had plastic surgery, it's not what they tell you on television. Come on, ladies. Uh, come on, men. We're going to do this and you'll be back at work in 20 minutes. That's not my experience. I've had two sessions. I've had 19 hours of plastic surgery. You come home on drain tubes. You come home on Cipro, which is one of the most harsh antibiotics they can give you. It's horrible. You come home and you've just had major surgery with all of its attendant suffering. And with this disease, you are challenged to exercise that patience of coming down in weight. I lost 200 pounds in this program and I was a 500 pound man. People were still making fun of me. People were still asking me, why aren't you gonna do something about your weight? And I had just lost 200 pounds. I still had an overhanging stomach. I still had so much fat around my groin 
that I was emasculated both physically and emotionally. Now, most of you are not going to get to that point, but some of you will. And it is very difficult to think, gosh, I've got this and I've got this and I've got all these things. What's the use anyhow? We have to keep going. And it says here, we who have recovered from serious drinking are miracles of mental health. But we have seen remarkable transformations in our bodies. Hardly one of our crowd now shows any mark of dissipation. Dissipation is the alcoholic face that you see. They hardly show it. Now, when it says here, we are miracles of mental health, he is not saying here, nor is he suggesting that if you have clinical anxiety or you have clinical depression or you have schizophrenia or you have any multitude of mental illness or, or, or personality disorders or real reason to be treated by a psychiatrist or a therapist that you shouldn't avail yourself of that help. We are not a substitute for those things. But what I can tell you today is, and I know that I'm running over, but I, I can't just stop right here. I'm sorry. I can say yes when I mean yes, and I can say no when I mean no, and I don't make a commitment that I don't live up to. And I don't have to be a Democrat when I'm with these people and a Republican when I'm with these people and a White Sox fan when I'm with these people and a Cubs fan when I'm with these people. I am who I am, and it is emancipating, and it is a beautiful way to live. It is a beautiful way to live, but that didn't come overnight. I had to work my steps. And I have to continue working my steps. Here is what I have come to. I am not so scared that you won't like me that I am going to compromise who and what I am. Now, does that mean that I'm going to insult you? No. Does that mean that I'm going to say things that are offensive? No. Love without honesty is sentimentality. And honesty without love is brutality. I don't have to be brutally honest. Does this dress make me look fat? Yeah, you look like a water buffalo. No, I don't have to say that to somebody. There's kind ways of saying something or say nothing. But I am not going to compromise my integrity. I am who I am. If I say yes, I mean yes. If I say no, I mean no. And that's okay. And whoever doesn't like it, is it, that's okay. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm going to insult you. That doesn't mean that I have to say offensive things. It just means that I have the freedom to be who I am and do what I do. And I don't have to think about how I'm going to manage my opinion, manage what I say to get you to like me. I don't have to be deliberately patronizing or a jerk. To me, that is mental health. That is something that only can come from this 
program. Now, I am going to turn this back to Karen or Sue L. I think I'm going to turn it back to Karen, but I could be wrong. I think Sue L is doing the questions and answers. I'm sorry I ran over a little bit, but that's okay. Um, I hope that today has helped you in some way. I hope that today has touched something within you that will cause you to reach higher for a recovery than you did before we started. And I hope sincerely that today's information was helpful to you. Karen? Thank um, you very much, Harlan. For you to go over three minutes, no no problem at all. You did, you did a stellar job. Once again, I'm going to stop the recording. And... Um, um, Sue is going to be doing the Q&A. If you've asked a question last week, if you could kindly hold back. Also, Harlan does not answer any food questions or math questions unless Larry Kay would like to ask him a math question. You can. So I'm going to stop Amen. the recording and then we'll go from there.